I'm your host, Jeff Wu. And I'm your co-host, Michael Brandt. And we're stoked to have Megan Clemen, founder of 3Scan, uh, with us today. And she's was recently profiled part of New York Magazine's article on biohackers and being one of the more prominent female biohackers out there. So we're excited to have her on board on this episode to talk more about her biohacking experience and also about her entrepreneurial journey as uh, not only a founder, but also a founder in, in a space that's just burgeoning. Awesome. And I'm super excited to be here. Like, uh, like I was telling you guys before uh, we started recording, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. And I really think that you guys are just pushing forward exactly what we need to be doing in biology, like exactly what we need to be doing as people to always be thinking about how to improve ourselves, how to improve our cognition, how to improve, you know, our basic biology. Awesome. Yeah. I think that when people think about biology, it's always stereotypically been one of the more fuzzier sciences compared to like your pure mathematics, your physics or chemistry. Uh, you know, biology has always been more of an observational science. You know, what do you think have been the biggest changes have moved or developments that you've seen over the past years, decades have moved biology more and more quantitative? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that just that acceptance that biology should be something that is quantitative, especially when you're talking about, uh, moving things into you know the clinical world and clinical diagnostics like there's just a really um, there's a lot of slowness like people really hesitate to change the way that we do anything in the world of diagnosing diseases and pathologists are are kind of the worst at this you know uh, looking at tissue and determining a disease from you know from the visual inspection of tissue has been so much more of an art than a science right. um, for, you know, since its inception, uh, very little has changed in the way that we look at tissue and the way we do the basics of histology and pathology. And it's been really great in the last few years just to see this idea of, you know, things needing to be more quantitative really take hold. Like, as we've been able to see advances in computing, um, it's made it feasible to look at visual data from tissue and have computers be involved in diagnoses. Do, do, you think, do you think that this old sense of biology is going to go away and that biology is just going to become computational biology? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we, we do things to the best of our ability at the time that we're doing them. So it's like a tooling thing. We just bet better yeah. animals with better tools now. Is that, is that exactly, exactly. And I think that the like, tissue-scale biology has been one of those holdouts, right? Partially because we didn't have the tools. We weren't able to, you know, it's still really hard for computers to, to look at pictures and be able to pull out relevant information from it, right? Um, but part of it is when you don't conceptualize that as being a problem, you don't work on fixing it. Yeah. I think that's a funny analogy where the the car used to be called an automatic horse carriage. And now it's just an automobile, right? And yeah. then I think the same thing will happen with biology. Now, I think that, that dovetails very nicely with talking about computational, I guess, vision applied to biology to talk about 3Scan. I mean, you guys just recently closed a big series of funding. Um I think our listeners would love to hear more about 3Scan, the technology you guys are building, and a little bit about your, your founding story there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 3Scan is a microscopy company. We run imaging as a service. So people send us tissue, uh, we image the tissue, and then we perform some degree of analysis 
on the data stack that we have from it. Um, what makes 3Scan really different is that we automate the process that is traditionally really manual. So if you want to look at a piece of tissue, and it doesn't matter if you're a researcher doing this for you know, basic drug discovery or a doctor pulling out you know, a, a biopsy to make a diagnosis, the way that you look at this tissue is pretty much the same and has remained unchanged in the last 150 years. Uh, you take that piece of tissue, uh, it's really squishy, you can't cut a thin section from it, so you put it into a hard substrate. Usually that's a paraffin wax if you're doing light microscopy. If you're doing electron microscopy, it's going to be a hard resin. Uh, you then cut a very thin section. Usually that section is um, one cell thick, about five microns. Uh, you use that uh, thin section, you cut it off on a thing called What's a What's the technique to cut such a slight... It's a, yeah, so you use a thing called a microtome, which is kind of like a deli slicer. Um, okay. So it's like a deli slicer if you're doing, yeah, right. like nano bacon, right? Like, uh -huh. So you cut, you use this uh, microtome, you cut off a thin section, there's a human doing it, you then float that section on a water bath, you pick it up on a slide, then you take all the steps that you did to put that tissue into the wax, you take all the wax back out. And so you put a solvent on it, you put water, you know, you put alcohol on it, you put water on it, and then you stain it. And then you look at it. So in, in the clinic, are, are we, you know, putting the deli slicer onto your arm and so, taking a slice of bacon off of my skin? Or, so the or deli slicer is the traditional method. So after that doctor comes in and takes the biopsy out of you, uh, once okay. it then has deli walked the away, okay. then, yeah, then, it's, then it's gotten deli sliced. Okay. Uh, the problem with doing that all by hand is that's incredibly manual and incredibly slow. This is why we take a sampling, right? This is why it only makes sense when we're looking at a piece of tissue to take you know, three, maybe even 20 sections, but use that as a representative sample and hope that we're gonna see whatever characteristics we need to see in there. So let's say, you know, you've got a weird looking mole on your arm, you know, we pull that mole out, uh, I'm gonna go into my lab, that's, you know, that process is gonna go through, uh, like a histotech's gonna take, you know, your sample, take it through, put it into a block of paraffin, take that thin section, you know, they'll take, they'll take a, you know, a handful, probably five representative sections, they'll stain them, and then the pathologist will look at it and tell you, hey, is that, uh, is, you know, is your mole healthy, um, or do you have cancer? Now, taking five sections from uh, a thin biopsy that was from your larger mole, that's a sample of a sample of a sample. And we hope that we saw the cell that is going to give you the right diagnosis. Uh, but the chance that that cell, that abnormal cell that's going to give you the right diagnosis is still sitting in that block of tissue just because it's too manual. Right. Um, that's a reasonably high chance. Um, so that's, I mean, that's one reason that this manual process is, um, you know, is suboptimal. Um, another big reason is that we, we lose the basic understanding that biology takes place in three dimensions. I mean, the way that we conceptualize, like even our basic researchers, when you're looking at pieces of tissue, um, we are taking these two-dimensional samplings and we are extrapolating out what we think the rest of it looks like. And we have very little understanding of the, you know, how these things relate to each other in 3D space. Right. Um, it's like, I guess an analogy would be, imagine if we had to debug how an airplane worked by taking, uh, you know, a one-inch cross-section from it. Exactly. Right? I think that's like the you know, a, a more physical analogy that hopefully our, our, our listeners can, you know, picture in their head. So you're almost like automating all the slices. So your system 
will just do a bunch of different sizes a lot quicker a lot cheaper because it's not manual yeah it so, lets you build like a like a tomography a 3d sort of exactly graph exactly. of what all the cross sections look like yeah so we built a robot that takes the place of a lot of the that human work and so what we do is we take a diamond knife which is the same kind of knife you would use on a microtome if you're doing electron microscopy and we shine light through the back of the knife so the knife becomes part of the optical train of the microscope so as we're taking a section across this paraffin block, the tissue is sliding up onto that knife. Light is transmitting through the knife, through the tissue, into optics that are focused right on the bevel of the knife uh, with a line scan camera on the back. So as soon as we've taken this section, we've also taken a scanned image of it. Um, this lets us automatically cut through 10,000 sections where you know a standard histologist would take this representative five to 20 sections. Right. Uh, this gives you much more data, much better understanding of, you know, looking for these kind of cells in a haystack. But it also lets you take that stack of images, and because they're perfectly lined up, because we did this by a robot uh, that's on an automated stage, we can turn that stack into of like a 3D images model. into a 3D model. Are you still doing the biopsy to get the source cells for that? Yeah, you have to pull it out of the body first, and then it's in, in, yeah, in yeah. the mold, I'm and just, then... Yeah, I'm yeah. just curious from a timing perspective. Does it take, uh, I guess, like for for a manual person, 15, 20 slices is like like a couple hours of work? F 15, 20 slices is for someone who's highly skilled, like half an hour. For okay. someone who's sort of a you know newer and less good at it, about an hour. And then the three scan technology, that's... 10,000 slices. Yeah, so our 10,000 slices is going to take more like eight hours. So it's a, it's a longer process. And a lot of what we're doing right now is focusing on preclinical drug discovery. So we're using um, these highly accurate 3D models. So a really good way to think about our models is uh, to think about um, an X-ray and a CT. So an X-ray, a uh, CT is a stack of X-rays, but lets you see the 3D structure underneath. Um, the three scans really similar. It's you're having a stack of 2D images that let you see the three-dimensional structure underneath. So we're using that to look at um, uh, preclinical drug discovery, primarily cancer therapeutics, um, and let you uh, see how blood flow and other um, other factors are changing in between. You know, adding your therapeutic and not adding it. So making um, mouse models more accurate. So uh, well, one one question I was gonna, was going to say is the when you're taking the biopsy, is there also sampling issue, like where depending on where you're taking those from? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that we've put a lot of work and science into minimizing. But there's absolutely a sampling issue if you take that biopsy from the wrong place. You're not going to get the cells that are going to give you. Like no matter how well you analyze the biopsy. Through scan, like you're. Oh yeah, I mean, if you've taken, you know, you're t you're taking a sampling of a sampling, right? So there's always going to be a chance. If their treasure map is wrong and you're digging in the wrong place, yeah. there's no gold there. Yeah, yeah. No matter how good your shovels are. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Any other thoughts? Really? Is it something that you're working on too? There, or like, what's the state of the art with that? With um, samplings of samplings. Make sure the sampling, far, the, the first target is is. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it uh, it changes depending on what disease model you're looking at. Right, so um, a lot of diseases have changed their um, the treatment outcomes. So, like something like prostate cancer, it used to be that if you had high PSA levels, your doctor's going to go in, they're going to do a biopsy, they're going to look to you know to see if there's cancer cells in your prostate, and if they find that cancer, they would remove your prostate. 
you know, the treatment is now changing to say, hey, actually, you know, most prostate cancers aren't killing people and the side effects of not having a prostate are pretty shitty. So let's, you know, let's just monitor it and make sure it's okay um, and take more, you know, we'll just take a biopsy or we'll take uh, like 12 needle cores, right. you know, every six months, right? So that, you know, um, it changes depending on the disease and what you're looking for. Um, and this and, and, and your technology is in practice, right? I, I recently read that it's deployed at you know a few different research universities. This is not this is not vapor. This, this is yeah, in no, practice. This is, this is real. And uh, you guys, uh, if you're in the mission, you should come by come by the lab. I'd okay. Love to give you a tour. Um, cool. Yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty neat stuff, especially you know when you see it. But uh, but yeah, our our technology is totally in practice. Uh, you know, like I said, what we're doing with it right now is we're really focused on preclinical drug discovery. Um, being able to make these highly accurate models of, you know, a tumor in a mouse, looking at different cancer therapeutics. Um, uh, we work a lot with looking at models of blood flow. Um, so using uh, quantitative comparisons of the vasculature of, you know, a mouse tumor, uh, you know, before and after therapeutic or, or different, uh, different treatment methods. So we're really focused as a business on getting our tech into, um, the drug discovery market right. while we're building out the uh, pathology platform. Um, pathology is something that is hard to break into both because pathologists are not super into automation and are not super into change. Uh, and I mean, uh, taking their jobs essentially, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, you're making their job more accurate, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, um, you're taking their job. Uh, though something like radiology, like radiology uses computer aided diagnostics all the time. Right. Uh, whereas pathology doesn't. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, anytime you're doing dealing with humans and diagnosing humans, you know, you're dealing with the FDA, uh, and you need to make sure that your technology is really robust. And so we're using preclinical drug discovery as the way to get our technology out there um, and really, you yeah, know, doing it right, utilize it, yeah. yeah, while we're building out the, you know, the platform for pathology. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. I think that the the story arc of a software company or app company is really well understood. But for 3Scan, this is this is a pro, you know, this is a mission that's been going on for five, six years now. Yeah. How how did you get started? I think it's you know, there's a lot of, you know, blogs around, hey, I I started a computer, you know, computer programming when I was eighteen and I built my first app. Yeah. How, how does one get into building out medical technology. Yeah, I mean, it's well, Yeah, what's your personal yeah, journey it's, here? It's definitely a different world, you know? Like, um, like people in the hardware community like to say hardware is hard. Right. Um, it has, you know, longer longer lead times, much more capital intensive, and the same is true for biology. So having that overlap between hardware and biology is a maybe not the uh, easiest path that one could choose. Um, my uh, my co-founder, um, I, I, we have a founding team of four of us. And so my original co-founder, Todd Huffman, worked on the core of, um, of what has become our technology while he was in grad school. And at the time, it was uh, being used for a really narrow neuroscience application um, to do neuronal tracing and connectomics. Um, so thinking about the brain like a circuit. One of the problems with connectomics is you can't see where the neurons are going using traditional imaging methods. Uh, if you're using something like uh, CT, you're not able to see something as fine as a single neuron. But if you're taking sections by hand, you're not able to trace where that neuron goes in three-dimensional space. Um, 
And so he and I, you know, were friends when he was in grad school, and uh, we both thought this technology was pretty neat. Um, but the, you know, the computational overload was was too much. Like one of our cubic centimeter data sets in black and white is two terabytes. Uh, and so in, wow. <laughs> yeah, in 2000 and, you know, eight, that's a, a non-starter, right? Um, but as... Uh, computing got cheaper. Um, we really saw this as being the future of, you know, the future of medicine, the future of drug discovery, the future of biology is just moving in a more quantitative direction. And so, you know, uh, he and I moved to San Francisco. Um, we pulled in a mechanical engineer, Cody Daniel, and a, you know, data scientist, Matthew Goodman, and the four of us. Uh, lived together and started seeing if we could, you know, uh, build some prototypes and get some traction. So it's still very much a, a startup story where it's just like get, you know, the few of the original key brains in place and just yeah. grind it out, like build like the, you know, first prototypes very much like you know, like, you know, a, a Facebook story of like kids coding in a garage or something. Totally. It's still, still very much um, your standard startup story, except with these longer lead times and, you know, things like bizarre miscommunications. Like when I thought I was being FedExed a bladder and then two cadavers show up on my door. Wow. <laughs> FedEx can carry cadavers? No, a medical, <laughs> a medical examiner came in with them with a gurney. Uh, and I was like... Uh, I thought you said bladder. He was like, no, 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 cadaver, cadaver. Didn't know how much tissue you'd want. I'm like, uh, put them over there, I guess. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm just curious, how do, would you even store, I mean, these are, are these like preserved bodies or literally at a rotting? No, they're, pre they're okay. preserved. They're, they're, they're <laughs> Like we need like a fixed. vault to like make <laughs> yeah. sure, you know, there's not decomposition in our, in our, in our office now. <laughs> no, no, they're, they are fixed and involved. But, uh, but yeah, in the, you know, you have your uh, more traditional like Facebook startup story where people are trying to scam free Wi-Fi and we're trying to like scam free tissue off people. Like, <laughs> um, I, my mom lives in Mexico and I went to visit her and went to the dermatologist because right. um, my mom was getting Botox and I started talking about what we do and the you know the doctor there was like oh do you need samples and just started giving me like extra blocks and blocks yeah oh she's like my no, God. none of these people need it and get you know so I've I've lots of stories like that of like having a purse full of you know like blocks of thyroid or you know digging through something on a date and flying out flying that into back into the country <laughs> yeah <laughs> so one of the one of the big questions in with biohacking enhancement and and therapeutics is just longevity effects like things that affect over long time scale because that's just hard to do right there's twin yeah. studies like when you're trying to really look at how something affects someone in the long term that's just a it's a hard problem because time has to pass yeah um absolutely are there things at the tissue level are there are there techniques to like I guess, accelerate time and and to aid the study of things of knowing hey does this if i do this thing for 40 years am i going to be better in 40 years uh, based on my my genetics yeah, I mean, um, it's a. I think there's a few different answers to that, right? Like, uh, absolutely, being able to combine these different parts of biology that we understand uh, makes us better able to make predictions. So, you know, one of the things that's happening in the world of genomics, right, 
is, uh, you know, we, we sequence the genome. This is amazing. You get these crazy, you know, get all this data from it. No one knows what to do with the data. We spend, you know, years analyzing the data. We start to see, you know, correlations. And we come up with this whole field of bioinformatics to help us understand the data. Uh, now, and we're, we're, you know, as a scientific community, super jazzed, and we've got the, this blueprint to people now, right? Uh, and then now we start to see that the way that we looked at, um, at taking these samples, you know, we would take a piece of tissue, we'd essentially throw it in a blender, uh, and, you know, and then, you know, sequence a part of it, right? Now we find that, you know, sequencing one part of it versus a different part gives you a totally different answer, right? Um, being able to take the learnings that we're getting from genomics and put them into something like what we're doing where you have a spatial mapping of tissue um, and also using you know techniques like next-gen sequencing you know being able to, to sequence something off of a single um, a single cell right uh, but then overlaying that back into our understanding of structural biology and taking our understanding of structural biology and being able to make that you know one level up you know and then see how that fits into the context of something like an MRI and like an in vivo study. Like all those things need to be correlated uh, and the correlation between those will definitely give us much more information than what we have now. Uh, nothing speeds up time though, like you, you still aren't gonna be able to get nine women to make you a baby in a month, right? Well, my, I, so, so then a related question is then like, it, how close are we to completeness as far as just having an accurate computer model of a human body that's just, this is, every, this is everything, from structural to tissue to, this, to uh, nano, like every sense of a human body, this is how, how it works. Yeah. Like, and then we're, I don't know, we're done? Or like, if, yeah, if we get yeah, reasonably totally. close there, then you, can, then you could accelerate time on that model. Um, so, that's really interesting. So I think that we're much further off from that than people realize. Uh, one so this same project. I think that, the base science that we don't even understand how everything works. First of all, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was actually because, really like, the shocked. tools aren't even there to like just resolve like how everything put is put together. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I was really shocked um, with that that project I was talking about, where you know we were. I was expecting to get human bladders, and instead I got you know bodies. Um, that project was to. Uh, map the innervation of a human bladder um, to make a more effective um, overactive bladder treatment. They're trying to to kill some of the nerves so that you wouldn't have the same bladder input. Um, you know, when I was talking to these researchers, I'm like, well, what, you know, what are you using to map it now? Like, I, I have looked at anatomy textbooks. Like, I see nerves in there. It's like artist interpretation. We have no idea where the nerves are. None, none at all. So even something as large as where are the nerves uh, in your body, and these are researchers who are in phase three clinical trials of their treatment. Like they didn't know where the nerves were because that's something that is basically impossible to do by hand. Wow. Like like those are still gaps that we have. So we're you know we're still a fair ways off, um, but the more we're able to do this cross-modality stuff, right? The more we're able to get the genomic into the tissue and the, you know, the tissue into the in vivo, uh, the, the closer that we get. Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, theoretically there's no computational, you know, limit that we can't model this out. But I, I agree. I yeah. think the state of the art is that, yeah, like, like even just like resolving, like, yeah, how like neurons are connected to each other, right? Like that's yeah. just hard to do, right? And, and I think when people are looking at like, 
all those like philosophical questions can you even like map if we're to clone your exact like state into another person like how does that even work right and like there's a lot of questions around even if you're imaging things like that would like like just by observing like your your like like the i guess the neuron connections or, or the quantum state there right like that would change your brain state so like you, like basically like it's hard to even like find like base truth of what how you're yeah yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, by imaging it, you're definitely changing it. And, you know, some of those basic questions, like when um, the lab that the basis of our technology came out of uh, is this brain networking lab and, you know, looking at connectomics, what they wanted to do was be able to get good imaging of neurons and how neurons connected to each other so they could run simulations of it. And even that is, you know, it's hard to get the degree of granularity. Also, you know, more and more in biology, the more you learn about something, the more you know that you don't know. I mean, when we sequenced the genome, we thought we had this, you know, the blueprint, we had the map, right? right? And there wasn't any conversation about epigenetics and how, you know, different, you know, you're going to see different things at the tissue scale in different environmental conditions. Right. Uh, So it's, it just, I think, really shows the more that we need to you know, push on it to be able to see all of the things that we currently don't know. I also think it's one of the reasons that biohacking is really interesting and really important. You know, I think it's really important that we don't, uh, that we feel comfortable to change our own bodies in the way that we want to change them. And uh, one of the things that I think is really awesome about what you guys are doing is making, you know, nootropics and, you know, like, biohacking something that is like real and not fringe and accessible to people yeah intangible yeah Yeah. exactly um so like i have a magnet in my finger right and like one of the things that i think is really awesome about it right is i think that that sense of comfort of altering my own body to do the things that i want it to do is incredibly essential and that a lot of that is just you know like a like a psychological thing, right? Is like feeling comfortable with doing it. And like, we're not gonna know, we're not gonna be able to run the simulation to know what things are gonna be like in 40 years. So you just need to feel okay to take control of your body and whether that's through nootropics, whether that's through implants, you know, like we should feel like our bodies are things that we can hack and we can change. Yeah, I think that's that's how progress is made, right? I think if you have like a theoretical understanding and some early data points that's uh, that's how extrapolation happens right like that's how Wright brothers were like hey we can actually fly something yeah like you got to experiment and tinker with it to see what is even possible yeah no i think that's a great segue actually i mean thanks for even just bringing to biohacking um you know what you know obviously as we're building a biotechnology sort of microscopy company you're looking at all these different ideas what got you into experimenting you know with different biohack you know biohacks what got you to implant a, a magnet into your finger? You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I do just think, you know, that I think that there's so much that is biohacking that people have normalized and just don't even consider it anymore. Like, we use biohacking just to refer to the things that we see as being fringe. But, like, I was putting on makeup this morning, and that's biohacking, right? Like, I'm actively changing the way that... Yeah, that people are seeing me. Yeah, yeah. to to trigger some, you know, evolutionary signals to you that I am, you know, younger or have different facial bone structure or whatever, right? (laughs) Right. And we don't conceptualize that as biohacking because it's completely normalized. Uh, So anything, you know, I, I feel really strongly that... 
by having more people do the things that are on the fringe, we make those things on the fringe more and more, you know, Normalized. okay. Yeah. 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 I think that, I mean, I think it's a great point. I mean, we talk about like eyeglasses. I mean, that's like one of the, yeah, one of the other original biohacks, right? Like it is not natural. It's not a God given thing to have like, you know, things on our face make us see better. Yeah. But it, now if you're not wearing glasses and you have, you know, nearsightedness, you're just, you're like a, broken it's not a zero-sum game to make progress i think one yeah. progress is inevitable if you just look at what makes us different from other animals it's by being able to pass along technology by passing along advancements and how we can manipulate our environments and ourselves yeah yeah absolutely and of course it's complicit like living in a house is complicit you know right. <laughs> like you know where we are not able to be out in the elements and those, uh, you know, and if we try to, like if I move to Alaska and don't build myself a structure, like, of course I'm going to die. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> you know, any, any form of modification like makes everybody have to do it. That's what being evolutionarily fit is. Yeah. I think it's funny. Cause like there's, it, where's the line? If it, like some seem like, Oh, that's, that's okay stuff to like be doing to our environment or ourselves. And this other stuff is like unnatural or fringe. And I think that like, just as humble human beings, like just being, being saying that, Hey, there's a, there's a magic line that I get to choose. It's like, I think very arrogant. I think it's just like, let people get educated and have them choose their own, you know, things that they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the, we do have a, like a culture of deferring to authority, right? Like, um, like diagnostic tests. This is a problem that 23andMe has went into, right? That like diagnostic tests have to be doctor, administered by a doctor. Right. Um, there's a, there's a great article that, uh, I'll send you guys about home pregnancy tests, um, talking about how we, we should never, it's a article from like the, whenever home pregnancy tests came out, I think like the twenties or thirties, um, uh, saying, you know, warning us against this horrible world where women could find out that they're pregnant <laughs> and not understand the concept of it. And they would go off and kill themselves and they would go off and, you know, like do these horrible things. Right. Um, this idea that we need to protect the weak and delicate members of our society from their, you know, themselves is, you know, really fundamentally wrong. Yeah. I think it's patronizing, right? Like if you're not educating them, you're keeping them continuously boxed in, you know, in some cage, right? Like I think yeah. the better solution is to increase education be like, Hey, these, this is the actual facts. Yeah. I, I think it's yeah. like, yeah. Right. I think that's like as, as entrepreneurs, as people that are adventurous, I think we've all seen that. Hey, you can learn a lot by you don't, yeah. You don't necessarily need to be taught with like in, in a college or in, in a classroom. A lot of things you can learn by reading the, like the source material. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that we, you know, as a society, um, you know, with the advent of the internet, we now have this, you know, rich trove of information that is generally accessible to everyone. Like I, I am a believer that you need to have, you know, like, uh, solid education system that is freely available to everyone. Right. Um, so that you can contextualize and understand information. But, uh, but we do live in a kind of magical time where it's reasonable for people to get information, understand it themselves, make their own, you know, assessments and decide for themselves what they want to do with their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious from just a more, just 
tactical question. Like, how is it to have a magnet in your finger? Oh, uh, it's, you know, it's great. <laughs> describe it for, yeah, describe it's, it for our listeners. Here. It's great. It's, um, you know, it's like having another sense, right? So you can uh, tell when electromagnetic fields are, you know, are around. You can tell when things are on. And like from a practical perspective, uh, other than, you know, holding bobby pins when I'm doing my hair or uh, picking up small screws when they fall on our optical bench, like there's not, <laughs> there's not that much that it comes up uh, practically, but it's really cool to be able to have changed my own body to give myself a sense that I wouldn't have otherwise. Do you like change out magnets? I've, I've heard that, you know, magnet, I mean, magnets get demagnetized over time. Do you like sort of swap in different magnets or no. have you had to no, not no, have that I've, issue to yeah. that your magnet hasn't lost power yet? Yeah. And, and I don't believe that the magnets really lose power over time. Um, actually, so uh, my co-founder, um, and best friend, it was the first person to ever do a magnet in his finger and his has not lost any power. Yeah. Yeah. What's next for you guys? I mean, I, you know, after, you know, that series B, obviously I imagine that you guys have a big roadmap ahead and potentially hiring people. If there's listeners out there that are resonating with Megan's, you know, culture and, and, and the company mission, I mean, I'm curious. Yeah, to, absolutely. To, to yeah. Have you just, you know, open up just areas that you're interested in and looking for talent. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, really, we're excited by anyone who is excited about what we're doing. So if, you know, if you think that this is something that really resonates with you, if you have, you know, skills that you think would be valuable, like come to us and, and let's talk and see if there's something that, you know, if there's something we can find. Uh, you can go to our webpage, um, www.3scan.com. Uh, we've got, um, you know, uh, we have a space there to, to contact us. Um, we do list, you know, job opportunities for things that we're looking for, but we're also really into hiring people who have those, you know, those intangible skills that we didn't know that we right. needed until they come to us. Um, and we like we love talking to people. We love having people buy. Uh, we do monthly happy hours as a nice way to you know bring people by. Okay, and so lucky SF people try to stop by then. Yeah. yeah. So uh, really, if this is something that resonates with you, just contact us. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there any other last words in terms of biohacking? I, I mean, I think we covered an interesting spectrum from your personal story as an entrepreneur, your technology behind Three Scan, and how it's going to impact and, and sort of change how my crossfit is going to be done um, towards your personal experiences, seeing that, hey, biohacking is, should be for everyone. It, it's something that we've all been doing, and it's just like this weird, I guess, I guess moniker that's been recently growing a lot of traction. Um, any last thoughts, uh, conclu- concluding statements around anything you want to mention? Yeah, I mean, really just love for you guys and what you guys are doing. <laughs> I mean, I really think that by like bringing like nootropics to, you know, to a mass market and it changes the way that people think. It changes the way people thinking from, uh, it changes people from thinking that, you know, nutrition and food is this thing that you are told, uh, to it being something that you should look at, that you should be looking at your brain chemistry. You should be looking at, you know, what tools you need to give yourself to make yourself smarter and better. And that spirit of adaptation and change you know, permeates through everything else. And like that has huge widespread, like world changing value. And I just like, I love what you guys are doing. Thanks for the kind words. I mean, well said, I, I not, not, I mean, not much. I, I can't really add much there. Um, All right, that's, that's everything. I mean, that, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Totally. I just want to say to everyone out there that check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes 
Google Play, and YouTube. There we go. Yes. For the video of, of you can see Megan and her blue oh. hair. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, we'll have all the links uh, that you know, a couple of the resources that Megan mentioned as well. Catch you, catch you guys next week. Cheers. Yeah.